At the Foot of the Cross, a monthly podcast from the Catholic Bishops' Conference of England and Wales. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to our first podcast, our first At the Foot of the Cross for 2024. I'm not going to say Happy New Year to you. It's a little bit late for all that business, isn't it? Um, But an apology is due, and that is for not putting a podcast out in the middle of December, which I promised you. So that's a a mea culpa on my part and not the fault of the man sitting opposite me, which is Canon Christopher Thomas. Canon Uh, Chris, how are you? Very well, thank you, James. You happy for me to take responsibility for that it (laughs) It was a busy time for all before Christmas. Diplomatically put, it was actually, wasn't it? Yes. We, we, I think it's fair to say we simply ran out of time. Yes, yes. But we're here now. We are. We're here now. And quite often when we hit January in the church's calendar, I mean, all manner of other things, you know, come and go. But it is a time of unity, particularly Christian unity. There are other things like Racial Justice Sunday on the 28th of January, which we've still got to come. Holocaust Memorial Day, the day before on the 27th. And then as we push into February, the World Day for Consecrated Life on the 2nd of February. But we have the week of prayer for Christian unity, 18 to the 25th, which at the time of recording, we're sort of slap bang in the middle of. There was an IARCAM meeting in Rome, which are quite a mouthful, these acronyms, aren't they, when it comes to Christian unity? The International Anglican Roman Catholic Commission for Unity and Mission. Yes. And I know we have ARCIC and we have other acronyms that we can bring forth as well. And our Bishop of East Anglia, Bishop Peter Collins, is attending the Rome meeting, isn't he? Yes, he's he's our IARCAM bishop. And uh, IARCAM is an important body that comes out of ARCIC. ARCIC thinks of the more theological issues around faith and order. Whereas IARCAM is very much about the practical received ecumenism, how people work together on the ground. That's the way I remember it anyway. Well, simply put, very good. Now, let's let's make it even more simplistic because we're going to reflect on Christian unity and, and, and where we're at. And fair to say, though, that a key thing for us as the Bishops' Conference is that joint bishops meeting that we have every two years with our yes. with our Anglican bishops as well. And that's taking place in Norwich on the 30th and 31st, right at the end of the month. That's right. So next week... We normally meet in January. Um, it's floated around. It sometimes um, is the beginning of January, um, uh, but this month is uh, this time is at the end of January. But it, it it does come in the wake of the week of prayer for Christian unity, which I always think is is an important part of our Christian life. Mainly because it is uh, a command of Christ that we be one, as He and the Father is one, as it says in John seventeen. It's got an interesting provenance. The week of prayer for Christian unity was started formally by in 1908 by the Graymore Franciscans in America who had a real ecumenical vision. Um, they were Episcopalians originally, but also as Episcopalians saw the primacy of the Pope. And then they were received into full communion with the See of Peter, but continued that quest for, for unity amongst the churches. And then in 1948, the World Council of Churches, in its, uh, when it was formed, took on the, the, the role of promoting this uh, week of prayer for Christian unity. And the reason it's chosen between the 18th and the 25th of January, it doesn't make much sense today, but in the old Catholic calendar, the Feast of the See of St. Peter, the Chair of St. Peter, was the 18th of January, and the 25th of January is the Conversion of St. Paul. And so it was bookended by the two great apostles of the Latin Church, Peter and Paul. What do we do in the week of prayer for Christian unity? Well, we pray for unity. Our history shows division. We only have to look around the world to see the division that occurs uh, between the churches. But it's that sense of praying for that corporate unity 
that the father had with the son uh, is basically what we are about this week. It's not about dumbing down things. It's about, about celebrating the common ground that we hold, holding in tension the differences and exploring them more deeply and theologically, but always done in a context of prayer and Christian charity so that we are always looking to serve the body of Christ in the unity that uh, our Lord desired. So we will meet next week as a, a group of Catholic bishops and Anglican bishops in Norwich. There will be an ecumenical pilgrimage uh, between the two cathedrals, St John the Baptist and uh, the Most Holy Trinity, the Anglican Cathedral. But we're going to go via the shrine of the great mystic Julian, who is important for, for both of our, uh, our confessions of faith. We will discuss items and topics of, of relevance, but above all, this meeting, it's only 24 hours, is about fraternity. It's about knowing each other, getting to know each other, talking, sharing time together, eating at table. Yes, there are formal bits of business. We're going to be looking at the way in which uh, we um, have synods. I mean, we're in the middle of a synod process, yes. not the same as the Anglican synod, but there are similarities. And so we're going to be looking at how synod works, how synodality can be embedded in our church and how it's used in the in the Anglican communion. We're going to reflect a little bit on the coronation and what that meant for the country that moment back in May when King Charles was crowned uh, and Queen Camilla as well. And we're also going to have a little input from Monsignor Rod Strange, the rector of Martyr Ecclesia College, who works at uh, St Mary's Twickenham, on John Henry Newman and Newman's vision for unity. So uh, a rich agenda, but that's not the important thing. The important thing is actually getting together and spending time together. So that's what we're going to be doing in Norwich next week. And it's often a very visual piece, isn't it? Because I think back to the Liverpool meeting, and obviously you've got that great appropriately named road, Hope Street, haven't you? Where you've got the Anglican Cathedral and the famous Catholic Cathedral as well. Very iconic, those two cathedrals. And the meeting in the middle where you had that, that famous meeting, didn't, didn't you? And there, there's the statue of, of Shepherd and Warlock yes. meeting in the middle. So it's also, it is that visual representation of the, the Church of England and the Anglican bishops meeting together, isn't it? And what can be sort of achieved in unity. Yeah, and, and we, you know, it's about that walking together. I mean, this, this sort of aspect of pilgrimage, that even though it's, it may only be a 20-minute walk, we walk and we talk and we accompany each other on that journey. It may only be symbolic, but it's it's... It's a symbol of a greater desire that we are both in the mission field in this country. We both mm. are, are proclaiming the gospel in England and Wales. Uh, and that's really, really important that our task is the same. How we go about it may be different. And we may hold different emphases in our theology and our understanding of the gospel. But at the heart of it, as the church teaches, uh, you know, is Christ. It is a person who we preach. And so that encounter and drawing people into that sense of encounter is so important uh, uh, at this time in our in our in our country's lives. So you know we are we can't do this in a vacuum. We've got to walk, walk and talk together. No, and I think you made a very good point actually, because you know if we were to obsess about what divides us and what the differences are, then we wouldn't really get very far in any form of dialogue, would we? And you were saying, well, we acknowledge the differences. You know, they are there in the background, of course. Um, we don't shy away from them. But it is about what unites us. And, and 
you know, we do a lot of work alongside the Church of England, don't we? We do. And, and you know, in, in every fraternal that I've been a member of in my priestly life, you know, we've always met, we've always recognised that there are differences, but there are a lot of things that we can do together as well. One of the lovely things in my last parish that we used to do during this week of prayer was um, we wouldn't do anything special, but we would make a point of inviting each other to each other's services. So, uh, you know, we would go to the Baptist church for their worship. Uh, and uh, if there was a Bible study at the Methodist church, we would go along to that. And people would come to us for the celebration of Mass. And even though there is that painful division that people cannot receive Holy Communion if they're not in communion with the church, the very fact that we didn't dumb down the celebration, we did it exactly as we would normally do, but we were aware and prayed for in the context, because the church does provide a special set of prayers for Christian unity that we, we were there praying for that unity that the Lord desired for his church. And of course, the Holy See has a particular diacastry. So yes. it's, it's a, it is something of great importance to the church. Very much so. And it's something, as uh, Pope St. John Paul said in Ut Unum Sint, his letter on this, you know, this is not an, an optional extra. It is vital and part of our Catholic life. And, you know, mate, I don't know if it's because I'm a convert, a zealous convert, but it's one of those things that's always surprised me that actually despite the different characteristics of, of the popes of recent times, they've all had a bit of a focus on Christian unity, haven't they? Yes, and because you, you only have to look at the way in which Pope Francis, Pope Benedict and Pope St. John Paul all engaged in fruitful dialogue, which stemmed back, certainly with the Anglican Church, back to St. Paul VI and Michael Ramsey. The key thing is that we enter into dialogue. If we don't dialogue, we have no possibility of unity. It's keeping our hearts and minds open going deeply into the issues, but celebrating all that is good as well. Now I'm going to put you on the spot. You're going to love this. So when it comes to ecumenism, Christian unity, do you see the fruits of the process? Is it something that you would say, this is a very valuable thing that we're doing? It is a very valuable thing, but we have to be very careful to be content of being the sowers of seeds, not the gatherers of flowers. So that which we sow in our time will hopefully be reaped in times to come. But to be honest... Just to say, you know, one thing about Christian unity, there were no Catholic prelates at the coronation of Queen Elizabeth, whereas now I think I counted seven Catholic prelates at the coronation of King Charles. And as you say, it will be spoken about, but there were some there were some vestments lended across the way, weren't there? Uh, there there <laughs> was a, a set of a set of copes made their way down Victoria Street, I believe, to support the coronation from Westminster Cathedral to Westminster Abbey as well. A little sign of Christian unity. Well, but what we can share, we should. Very good. Very well said. So now you segue very nicely into our scripture piece. What have you got for us? Well, I was been reflecting because, you know, I've said that, that the Church of England and the Catholic Church in this country are all part of the same mission of the proclamation of Christ. Well, we had this, this wonderful beginning of Mark's gospel uh, on Sunday um, where there are two really important pieces. There's first of all, Jesus's initial proclamation of the kingdom of God being so close and the acts that we have to do to repent and to believe, and then the call of the disciples. So the first thing I want to talk about is what Jesus said. Um, the kingdom of God is close at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Now, before that, we've had John the Baptist, who was preaching a baptism of repentance. So there's a common theme. But Jesus goes that extra way and believe the good news. Repentance is something that people 
you know, they find it difficult. Even Catholics find it difficult. Uh, you know, I know what it's like to go to confession. There's a, a knot in my stomach every time I approach the confessional box. But having said that, it's the sense of stopping, thinking, examining actions, and then taking a new way that we are led to. Some people would say it's very humiliating. Well, I think it's humiliating in a positive way because uh, the word uh, humiliation comes from humus, which means the earth. It brings us low. But when we are low, we look up and we get a greater panorama on what we can see. There's that sense of, of it makes us think about what is important. And so that call to repentance is really, really important because it prepares the heart for what comes next, which is belief, believing. You know, what does Jesus say? We have to believe in the good news. And what is the good news? We are beloved of God. We have a God who is merciful and compassionate and desires us to have a full relationship with him, which is basically what Jesus is going to preach all the way through this gospel of Mark. And then we see the disciples Jesus walking along. And there's a wonderful thing in Mark's gospel, which is the great what a great immediacy of his writing. He uses the phrase and at once or immediately, the two Greek words kaiuthus. And this gives a sense of rapidity, of, of this is being done in a in a in a in a rush. Mainly because Mark was writing for a persecuted community and they needed to have encouragement in their persecution. There's that sense of they leave everything and follow him. And it's amazing, really, that what was so radically different about this teacher that was not with other teachers. If you go back to the week before, we had John's gospel and the beginning of Jesus's ministry where John the Baptist says, look, behold, the Lamb of God. And two of his disciples go spend time with Jesus and come back and say, we found the Messiah. Now, that would have been a more normal route for discipleship because people would become apprentices to a particular rabbi. Here in Mark's gospel, it's Jesus who's doing the calling. What does he see? Fishermen. What does he want? He wants people who are going to be proclaimers of his good news, who will draw people to himself. And so there's that sense in Jesus himself of, as St. Augustine says, truth, beauty and goodness. The three things that draw us to other people and enter and allow us to enter into their lives because these things are attractive and, and help us to understand ourselves in the context of living in a relationship with others. So what we see is Jesus saying, follow me and I will make you into fishers of men. And they leave everything. It's a radical choice. And that radicality is something that not everybody is called to. But what we are called to is to allow through the encounter with him for us to become deeper and deeper in our understanding of the Lord. And so this gospel that we had last Sunday, Sunday of the Word of God, that Pope Francis uh, uh, began a few years ago, a really important moment to encourage us to take the scriptures daily, to enter into a prayerful reading of them so that we can encounter the risen Christ and encounter the person of Jesus and discern our own response to his call, because we all have one. Remember, St. John Henry Newman tells us that we have some definite service yeah. and it's for us to discover what it is. But we can't do it outside of him. He is the one who will reveal it to us. Now, I think this is obviously a bit of a shorter podcast this time round. The, the key thing, though, to be honest, is that we have a very, very early Lent, don't we? 
Yes, Lent begins on the 14th of February. Somebody said to me the other day, Father, when you when you do uh, Ash Wednesday, are you going to give everybody a kiss as well as it's St. Valentine's Day? So kiss How did on you the, answer ki- that? A kiss on the cheek and then the ashes on the, on the forehead. On the forehead. Uh, I thought, well, I'll do the, certainly do the ashes on the forehead. To be honest, I've always been one who prefers the sort of what people call the modern formula for the ashes, turn to Christ and believe in the gospel, repent and believe in the gospel. The repentance is about the preparation of heart. It's the preparation of soul. It's opening ourselves ready to receive gifts, the gift of the Spirit, the gift of his love, the gift of his mercy. And that then prepares us for that discipleship and and helps us on, on our discipleship. So Lent, it's 40 days of preparation, penitential in essence, but not without joy. It's a season which is joy-filled, but what we've got to do is to use it wisely. So, you know, before we get to Lent, let's let's think, you've got a few weeks, what are we going to do? Not in terms of, of, of taking up, giving up or whatever, maybe take up some reading. What's good to read? Plenty of resources out there, but don't waste the season, that's what I would say. Yeah, absolutely. And a quick word for our, our nuns and monks, because we do have the... Uh, World Day for Consecrated Life on the 2nd of February, right at the start of the month. Yes. When we talk about that radical discipleship, as I said, not everybody is called to it, but some are. And those who enter into consecrated life are those who celebrate that radical discipleship in a very, very particular way. And the World Day of Prayer for for this in the church was established by St. John Paul II in 1997. And it's about celebrating their role in the church as those who live out, first of all, the evangelical counsels of poverty, chastity and obedience. But more importantly, the wonderful richness of their charisms. Charisms are the particular way of living out the discipleship that defines the community's mission in the world and the spirit in the service of the church. So when we look at particular religious orders, we may think of um, them as very apostolic, like sisters who have been teachers, a teaching order Mm. or a nursing order, or those who have a particular care for the poor and the abandoned in the world. And the charism of their founder is often knitted and weaved into the life uh, that, that, that they lead. But it's really, really important that we remember that the way that they act is always in the service of the mission of the church, rooted in those evangelical councils, in a relationship of charity. That's really, really important. And it all flows from the grace of baptism. We must never forget that baptism is at the heart and the root of all of our ministry within the church. So the Holy Spirit given to us in our baptism is the source of that diversity of gifts that comes from God himself so that we may be effective missioners uh, in the world, uh, true disciples with a mission. So um, to all of our friends who are consecrated in the world, may they celebrate beautifully and may, because it's Candlemas Day, may they shine like the light of Christ in the world, reflecting his glory through their ministry. Absolutely. And we've all gained, haven't we? It's a great gift to the church, actually, their ministry. Yes. Very much so. I have a particular love of, of, the, of the more contemplative orders because uh, in my diocese, very near to my last parish, was Mount St. Bernard Abbey. Uh, oh, and yes. I spent a lot of time there. I've been on retreat there. I'll plug their film outside the city to anybody because it just shows a wonderful way of living. Radically different, not trammeled by the world in any way, but wholeheartedly looking to be a community of prayer, a powerhouse of prayer in uh, the heart of Charnwood Forest, but also ministering to the community that comes to be with them. 
We celebrated on the 20th of January the feast of uh, Blessed Cyprian Iwini Michael Tanzi, uh, who was uh, the first Nigerian saint. And uh, uh, he's celebrated in our diocese because he was a monk of Mount St. Bernard's. So that radical choice to be a, a religious in the world is always rooted in charity, but it's part of the mission of the church. And mission, we come to the great synod, the mission is what we're focusing on in this period now, between the two Octobers, towards October 2024. And there's a big question. And the question which has been put to us for this period is, how can we be a synodal church in mission? How do we do this? So the reflection is ongoing. People may have thought that the gathering in October last year was it. It's not. The Pope is still wanting us to reflect keenly on how we enhance the mission of the church, both locally within our diocese and universally across the church throughout the world. And what the Holy Father has asked us to do through the Synod Office is to focus on that understanding of how do we all live out our baptismal consecration? How do we all live out that differentiated co-responsibility that each one of us has by virtue of our baptism in the mission of the church? So we need to discern what are the structures that are effective? What are the structures that we need to change? Are there new structures that we need to bring in? But that's a third thing because there's plenty of structures in the church that aren't working properly and we need to think about that. How do we enhance the role of those who make decisions and take decisions? Where does that sit with? And to move out from this idea, especially in parishes, of I'm just there to help because it's a responsibility that's on our shoulders. I was talking to a bishop last week, and he went to a, a meeting of a group of parishes in his diocese where they're looking at reducing the number of, of formal parishes into more of a pastoral area. And the conversation ranged on one hand to, we'll do whatever you tell us, to the other side of the spectrum of, well, we can run everything. If you want to come in and say mass, that would be great. So there's the two sort of bookends of the spectrum. Let's hope that we can find a happy medium in the middle where there is that sense of a differentiation of co-responsibility, each of us living out our ministry as God has given our ministry to us to live it out in the world so that we may be effective in proclaiming the Christ who we have our faith and our belief in, the same Christ that those disciples got up, left everything and followed him. So that mission really has to be a focus on how can we be better focused on our mission? How can we get structures that work? How can we have a heart that burns for the proclamation of the gospel in the world of today? And as we come on to quite a bit of the time, is that we all have that role of discipleship, don't we? Looking in the gospel, it's not just the apostles. We ourselves have to be disciples, don't we? And we have to look at our part in that. You know, we, we can't stand on the sidelines I hold my hand up as a priest. So often we have taken it on ourselves to do everything and people have been bystanders. We're in a position now where we can't do that. I mean, I, I was supplying in an area of my diocese at Christmas time where when I was ordained 23 years ago, there would have been seven priests working. There's now two. And so, um, you know, I'm quite happy to go up and help, but that just shows the radical change of the church. In yeah. one of the communities that 23 years ago would have been mainly uh, white British Irish, the church was mainly filled with East Timorese to show the differentiation in, in, the, in the demography of our parishes. 
The world is changing, the church is changing. We can't stick to old structures that don't work anymore. We've got to move them forward. And that's what we're being asked. That question, which is at the front and centre of this of this time, between the two Octobers, how can we be a synodal church in mission? And that's all to do with how can I be converted? How can I repent and open my heart, believe in the Christ who has been sent amongst us to dispel the darkness of sin and death and bring us into the bright promise of immortality, as Dave Urban tells us? How can I pick up my cross and follow him? Because it's not going to be easy. But in doing that, how can I be more effective as a disciple with the people with whom I worship in my local community, spreading out into the diocese, spreading out into the world? And there are those points of prayer for us, aren't there, at the end of this month and going into next month as we approach Lent that we pray for during our masses here at the Bishops' Conference. We pray for peace, but there's much tension in the world, whether it's Israel-Gaza and the fact that hostages remain and the fact there's a very acute humanitarian situation in Gaza. Then we look across to Ukraine and on the 24th of February, that will be two years since the the full-scale invasion there. You could look further across to Yemen. I mean, there there are many places in the world that, that need our prayer, aren't there, when it comes to peace? And prayer is where we begin because the prayer opens us up to the Spirit of God and broadens our horizons. We are not going to change God, but we will be changed when we pray. Uh, because it gives us a deeper understanding of God's will for each one of us, uh, but also for bringing forth his kingdom. And one of the attributes of his kingdom is a kingdom of peace. Amen. Father Chris Thomas, thank you very much indeed. Um, We'll be back next month, of course, with another At the Foot of the Cross. Uh, But in the meantime, let's all prepare ourselves for a, a holy season of Lent. Indeed.